5: I have many things to do. He said. I will write them all down on a list so that I can remember
4: them.
6: Number one, wake up. Number two, eat breakfast.
7: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
2: There, now my day is all written down.
7: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the very best of what we hear. Today, we're bringing you one of our favorite shows from the archives.
6: Number three, get dressed. Number four, go to Frog's house.
7: Given how much the listening landscape has changed, it's nice to be reminded just what a debt of gratitude we owe to those who came before, and this episode in particular is about a topic near and dear to my heart. Enjoy.
5: Look at my list of things to do.
7: Oh, that is very nice. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Most Wanted, the Top Ten, 20 under 40, 50 Most Beautiful, 100 Best Companies, A-List, B-List, VIP List, Waiting List, Watch List, Packing List, Punch List, Mailing List, Grocery List, To-Do List, Bucket List. Today on ReSound, guess what?
1: My list is blowing away. What will I do without
8: my list?
7: Did you know that someone paid $16,500 for John Lennon's to-do list from 1980? Number one on the list, and I quote, HBO Guy coming between three and five. Be there. Number four, Marmalade. And number ten, Photos in Books. Do it while you wait for HBO Guy. Lists are just so comforting. My father once told me he puts things on his to-do list after he's already done them just for the sheer pleasure of crossing them off. Okay, now that is just crazy, right? So crazy, I told a lot of people, and then they said that they did the same thing. Weird. But there is something intensely satisfying about list completion. Which brings us to our first story about a man on a mission to finish an unfinished list.
3: Number five run a half marathon.
9: So how
10: often do you, do you run? Uh, this past week has been really bad, but usually I try to go at least like three times a week. Um, but yeah, I haven't run in like four days. Today might be rough.
11: What do you think about when you're running?
10: I guess the stuff that I have to get done, the logistics of all this trip and what I'm going to write about next or, you know, it's a really good way for me to sort through my to-do list.
4: And
3: have you ever been a runner?
4: No.
8: I'm
10: not a runner.
7: <laughs> this must be love.
10: Yeah, definitely is love.
3: Number four, live in at least five different countries. So far, I've only got Canada and Korea.
10: Megan and I met in 2007 on a friend's roof. Where was that? This is in Seoul, South Korea. Why were you Uh She and I were both uh, English teachers. Our mutual friend, whose name is Joanna. I met Joanna my first day in Korea and I mean from the second day she started talking about her best friend that was coming over to, to live and teach from the beginning she said you can't date, you can't date, you're not allowed to date this girl. We had a really big group of friends that were all really tight and she was concerned that it would like ruin the, the friend dynamic. So naturally when somebody says that of course you want to like explore that. It seemed like such a ridiculous thing that our friend was making a huge deal about us not being able to date. So I turned into a big joke and would send this girl that I didn't know at all uh, just like really weird emails and stuff that didn't make any sense or like lyrics to really cheesy pop songs. When Joanna was telling us we weren't allowed to date before Megan came to Korea, I sent her the lyrics to this song. Last night. I had a dream that we went to
1: Disneyland. We went on all the rides, didn't have to wait in line. I drove you to your house where we stared up at the stars. I listened to your heartbeat
10: as I held you in my arms. San Dimas High School Football Rules the by the Ataris was the lyrics to that song is what I said, right? Nothing
1: could go wrong any time that I'm with you. You're blushing right now for the record. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
10: Thanks. We're leading up to that first kiss. I think when they wrote the song, well, I hope that when they wrote that song, that they were joking. Because it's like, it's so ridiculous. These are the things that make me free. I feel like I'm stuck in Stand By Me. That was my intention anyway, as, as like
1: a joke. Too good. So you meant it ironically.
10: Yeah, I totally meant it ironically. I'd even have Wayne Newton dedicate a song to you.
1: That is kind of a funny way to start dating, to joke about starting to date. Yeah. Yeah, it was totally, yeah. We spent like two months joking about dating
10: and then she got there
1: and we dated like a month later. I wonder if the joking that sort of gave you guys like a common ground to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that
10: did form some sort of bond or something that I don't know if we would have had otherwise. Well played, only well played by me. Be. <laughs> just
1: dump your boyfriend and go out with me. I swear, I'd treat you like a queen.
10: She likes wearing dresses a lot. It's nice to, when girls wear dresses It just sounds dumb, I like, think. <laughs> I think it's a different aesthetic when when we as opposed to pants yeah yeah and it's really comfortable and easy and there's nothing wrong with women wearing jeans believe me I think women look great in jeans but it you're not Arnold Schwarzenegger is what you're saying <laughs> no. I, I mean I saw her pictures and stuff and I knew that she was pretty but I don't know I was definitely like taken it back and, and I was definitely intimidated my friend that was leaving the following day I ended up talking to her way more than I did. Like I did the introduction and that was about it that night. I... couldn't deal with more yet. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. It was too much. <laughs> <laughs> we had the, we went on like our first real date, I guess you could call it. It was still like in a group setting. Um, so, But we, we sort of like, we split off at the bar and she and I just split a, a picture of whatever terrible beer that they serve in Korea and I don't know I think after that night both of us were were fairly certain that we actually we liked each other and wanted it to like be something yeah it was it was really natural
1: you say that as though she was your first girlfriend like the the vagaries of nature were at play
10: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just I think I'm largely confused by women but uh, no it wasn't I mean I've dated other people before and it it just didn't it didn't feel the same. It didn't feel the same. How did it feel different? It it just I don't I had that like uh-oh moment or or whatever you want to call it when we would hang out and that that's to me signaled that, you know, this might be more than just a casual dating relationship. We developed this habit of getting on city buses and just riding it to the end of the line. Um, In Seoul, the transportation is so cheap. You You go really far outside the city too. So you get to see like really interesting, crazy parts of Korea. So we just hop on a bus and ride it to the end. Megan found a brochure for this place called the Eight Wonders of Danyang. They play it up like it's it's a huge deal. You know, they have tons and tons of brochures about this place. It's totally underwhelming. Like, <laughs> they have, you know, a mystical waterfall, and you get there in the town. I mean, it's a rock face, and they have a, like, they literally flick a switch and it turns into a waterfall. Like, water comes <laughs> They pump water out there from the river and shoot it down the face of this rock, and they have lights underneath, and that's the, the big waterfall in town. They had a crossbow range there. It was an actual crossbow that you could shoot at balloons. Really? An actual Like an old wooden, it was awesome. It was so awesome. So I won Megan, like a I don't know, stuffed bear or something stupid.
1: That's incredibly dangerous.
10: It was so sketchy. It was great. There were no tourists there. There were like two hotels and one of them had holes in the roof and it's just
1: So that was your place only?
10: Yeah, I think that was like our one year anniversary or I don't know. We just decided that was our anniversary time, so. Do you remember the first time you guys exchanged I love yous? Yeah. In the beginning, we had like a little bit of a rough patch and I think it was overly dramatic on both of our parts back then. She was upset in the background, and I was upset, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. And Joanna called me, and she was like, she just kept telling me, that she kept saying she loves you and stuff. Uh, yeah. Really? So ready.
1: she told you through Joanna?
10: Yeah. That was the first time. But then, like, 20 minutes later, she actually came over and said it. And I don't know, I was surprised by it. I wasn't uncomfortable with the idea. I was just surprised that she said it before I did, I think. But then I said it like a month later after we went to this Mexican restaurant with a bunch of our friends and in the cab ride home. I told her you're really important to me and I love you.
1: What was the squabble about in the that was happening in the background?
10: I really like movies a lot. So I would download them and just want to watch it right then and not wait for anybody. So I would like watch a movie without her. Even, and she didn't really even care about the movie. She just wanted to watch it with me. It was stuff like that that we would fight about. We'd have an argument for, like, five minutes, and then we wouldn't talk for one, and then we'd be fine. You know, just kind of, like, gotta get it out. or you wouldn't talk for one minute? One minute, yeah. Just be quiet, and then... That is the
1: shortest silent treatment I've ever heard.
10: <laughs> Our fights were really sad. We didn't have, like, epic blowouts where people are like, throwing stuff. The next summer, in 2008, she felt a a lump, and then she wanted to get it checked out. Everybody, of course, is like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not going to be a big deal. I remember being a little definitely worried. Um, your mind, naturally, kind of goes in every direction possible to maybe try and prepare you for all of the outcomes. So, yeah, I was definitely scared, but I, I, I really honestly didn't think it would be anything. She rode the hour-long bus from Seoul to the airport and met me in the airport, and then we rode the hour-long bus back in. She'd already had the biopsy, so we went in to talk to the doctor about, I guess, the results of it. I wasn't being irrational or anything, I didn't think. I I just, like, I thought they would tell her it was nothing. I expected that. We sat down in this little office and... Korean doctor. Korean doctor, yeah, yeah. I mean he didn't speak perfect English, so he didn't want to I think he didn't want anything to be lost in translation. He wanted to be very honest and be nice and be comforting. But you know. He struggled so I mean <laughs> he just says like, I you have it's bad. This is not good. You have like uh you know, I yeah, he kinda of danced around it for a second and then just said it you have breast cancer and he yeah we just huh. Yeah. she immediately went into the i have to know everything about this mode so i'm fully prepared for it and i have control over this right that second right or right that second it was like a switch she her head didn't drop she was just like instantly okay i'm going to deal with this now and this is how we're going to do it <laughs> Yeah. Wow, I've... And I was trying to find something to throw through his computer. She wanted some time with the doctor alone to sort of discuss what it meant and, you know, what kind of treatment and how severe it was and all of that. And I just, I just, like, sat in the lobby and, I don't know, went kind of numb, really. And What was going through your head? I don't know how unfair it was or how frustrating it was that that happened to her. yeah, Just how unfair it all was, I think. So after she was done with the doctor, we went downstairs and had to pay for all of the x-rays and all that stuff. And then we left and went and sat outside for a while while she called uh, her parents and I called my parents.
1: What did you say to your parents?
10: I think I just said, Megan has breast cancer. And yeah, that was probably it. (laughs)
1: And do you remember what your parents said?
10: I think they were pretty stunned and like, they they just said like, it'll be okay. I was just thinking that we had to leave Korea as soon as possible for treatment and all that, yeah. But yeah, she went back to Petrolia and I moved back to DC.
1: Wait, so she was in Canada, you weren't even in the same country. No,
10: no, it, yeah. It was not easy at all. I had to fly to Detroit and either rent a car or get picked up and then drive across the border and get hassled by the border guards and then drive another half hour to her house. Healthcare in Canada is awesome and healthcare in the States is really good if you have a job that will pay for your healthcare. And I didn't have that so she couldn't move here. All of 2009 was like breast cancer treatment. She had a mastectomy. When they were doing that, they found more cancer cells in the lymph node in her armpit. So they removed like all of the lymph nodes. Mostly as a precaution. They they wheeled her into the room and I just like walked in. <laughs> I don't I'm I'm sure that they wanted us to like, you know, be patient about it and let her come out of whatever drug-induced fog that she's in because of sedatives or whatever. But, yeah, I don't know. I'd had enough (laughs) waiting at that point. (laughs) I just sort of, like, walked into the room and made sure that she was all right. It took probably a month for the surgery to heal, and then they started her on chemo, like, right away. It's a pretty intense round of chemo. Her fingernails turned really yellow and all, some of them almost came off, which is pretty normal for it's It's gruesome and it's awful. And, and she dealt with it. Oh, she definitely, she more than dealt with it. She documented the whole thing in a blog. That was just like a really straightforward, honest approach to what happens when you're young and you deal with breast cancer. She couldn't find this on her own. She wanted to put it out there to help other people, so other people would get encouragement and insight. So she'd been documenting the whole thing. I mean, put s- pictures of the scar that she had on her chest or, you know, what her hair looked like when it all fallen out or her fingernails. I think that took a lot of strength to do, and it was really important for her to do that so that somebody else along the way would see it. Cancer is awful, and it's especially awful for women because the things that they go through, like, they lose all the things that outwardly make them a woman, and it's, so unfair. Any woman that goes through breast cancer it, treatment is like a superhero. It's, women are held up to the standard where they have to look a certain way and they have to have you know long wavy hair and have a perfect hourglass figure. Breast cancer treatment just like destroys all of that. It really like tears you down. She was pretty self-sufficient. She oftentimes was comforting me more than I was doing for her. Making me feel better about it.
1: That's so interesting. I mean it's like on top of like needing to go through (laughs) her own emotional gauntlet, she's like sort of navigating you through yours.
10: Yeah. Yeah, but she was that much stronger. Like it wasn't a huge burden to her to take care of people. This thing that you love, this perfect this perfect thing that you went out and found that is all yours and loves you just as much as you love it is now being dissected and taken apart. It just felt really unfair and sad and like I feel guilty. Why? I don't, because it didn't happen to me and it happened to her. I don't know.
6: So, what happened next? You did the radi-
7: chemotherapy, then radiation?
10: After radiation, she had periodic checkups, and those came back clear. Her hair started growing back, and she was really excited to have haircuts and like get a job. And last winter, even uh, she and I came out here. Uh, my parents live in an RV, and we're camping on the beach in San Diego. And she came in and spent San Diego and met all of my family out here, and it was a great trip.
4: Yeah.
3: 17 get married no pressure Adam
1: how did marriage first come up i had been thinking about it for a long time before or after the diagnosis did you start thinking about it
10: probably after when we moved back I didn't make very much money so I couldn't like save I was just paying bills basically so I didn't really like have enough money to get her a ring or anything although you don't necessarily need a ring in order to get married no that's true but you search your whole life for, like, the perfect person, you know what I mean? Like, your other half. And I found that. I wanted, like, everything to be perfect for her. I got my grandmother's earrings. She had these huge earrings that had four diamonds on them. And I had them, like, make that into a, uh, just, it was pretty, <laughs> a pretty hefty ring, because they were a big <laughs> earring sort of felt bad about that, but I mean it looked really awesome.
3: Number 21, go ice skating in the Rideau Canal.
10: We went to Ottawa for the weekend. It's like a big family weekend, you know, go up and hang out and check out Ottawa and we wanted to go ice skating on the Rideau Canal. So I would planned to like propose on the canal. I mean it was this huge like awesome, perfect, romantic thing that I had worked out. And then we get there and it's like 50 degrees and all of the ice had melted. <laughs> so. I didn't want to leave Ottawa without proposing to her. I'd uh, proposed in the hotel room at like 7 in the morning when we woke up. She was an early riser and would get bored. So if you didn't wake up, then she would start poking you. But I tricked her into getting me a water bottle. Told her I was really thirsty and wanted some water, and uh, she's like, "What? You're just as far as it from the water as I am. You can do that yourself." And I was like, "I don't feel like it." So, That's so, she, so lame. Yeah, I know it was really weak. I, like it was the best that I could do on the spot. She came back in with a water bottle, and I had I like put it on her pillow, and she's, "What is that? It's a ring." She's like, well what is it, what's the? What's it for? Well, it's for you. Will you marry me? You're an idiot. It was not the like smoothest thing ever, but it, I mean that was, our relationship was always like me being really goofy and not doing things the way that they're supposed to be done, or or they just don't work out well, and I look like an idiot, basically. So
1: So you weren't on one knee?
10: On the bed I was. She was standing up, so I was still on one knee, but on the bed, so we were at the same level. (laughs) The ultimate reason for getting married is that I definitely knew that I wanted to be with her forever. She was no question the best thing about me. She brought out things that I didn't know about myself that were really positive and good. And she, like, challenged me to make myself better. Number 11.
3: Complete the Weekend to End Breast Cancer, 6-kilometer walk in Toronto.
10: In January 2010, she started getting, like, headaches, really bad headaches that, like, just wouldn't wouldn't ever go away. She went to the doctor. They did, like, CAT scans or MRIs or whatever, and it had metastasized. It had come back, and it has two uh, tumors in the back of her brain. When breast cancer comes back in the brain that it's it's sort of I mean it's basically like unreachable. We knew that it was terminal. We just didn't know how long. Yeah, it it went downhill like really, really, really quickly. Yeah. The like the ambulance came and took her to the hospital and we were there and the doctor told us what was going on and everything and gave her the choice of going back home like making her comfortable enough to go back home or you know passing away in the hospital and she chose the hospital why do you think? I think because she didn't want to make it hard on her family to be in the house she didn't want anything like negative associated with her bedroom or you know any part of the house she didn't want her family to feel that yeah to the end she was taking care of people the very end. Me and her mom and her dad were in the room with her when she passed away.
12: Was she coherent? Did she talk?
10: Yeah, she wanted to know like how long, and her dad said not long, and she told her mom it was gonna be okay, and then like laid back and was totally comfortable and just like went to sleep. It was,
11: It was weird. (laughs)
10: It was really strange.
1: I read your most recent blog post, and I was like, wow, like, I was thinking something along the lines of, like, I can identify with, like, a fraction of a fraction of that feeling. Do you know what I mean? It was, like, because I felt like it's, like, the worst possible breakup times one billion.
10: Yeah, I actually thought something similar when I was trying to quantify the feelings or whatever, but this is different. This is very, very, I mean, I don't want to diminish what it's like to go through a breakup, because that does suck. But this is like really insanely tangible pain, like physical, like my stomach. I remember right when she passed away, I remember not being able to stand up. I was like bent over sobbing and not being able to like right myself. I I couldn't stand up because it like hurt so bad. Like that literally, feels like being crushed, getting hit by a bus, being run over by a train. It's instantly
6: leveling. <laughs> yeah.
3: Number 26. Travel to India to volunteer with children.
10: I'm in uh, Jaisalmer, which is like the furthest city west you can go before you hit Pakistan. There's just like cattle and goats and pigs all wandering around town. Every couple of weeks, a few guys will come out and round up a whole bunch of pigs, like 10 of these pigs, and put them in a net and uh, haul them off to the bigger hotels that are outside the city for the tourists and foreigners' ham and bacon in the morning. (laughs) It sounds like... There's people outside pulling the skin off an animal. It's it's the most blood-gurgling squeal I've ever heard. I didn't know pigs had it in them. They literally live in the sewer system, the, the open thing. They spend all of their time rooting through the sewers. It's, uh, it's a, a pretty gross cycle of food, I would think. <laughs>
3: Number seven, master the following: sewing, knitting, and crocheting. Number six, my way with spend at least a hundred hours 30. volunteering. Number so 14, far, I'm up to forty. Go to an hours. NHL game. Don't really care 10, where. I just read want at least to go. twelve books a year. The
10: first thing that I thought of, right after she passed away, right outside the hospital, this was the first moment of clarity that I had. Number,
3: Number include. make Peter take me to a Number blue J three. Get some darn shiny, nice new glasses.
10: Megan had this list of goals, and she posted on her blog is a list of things that she wanted to accomplish before she
3: Number passed eight, away. Become part owner of a bed Number and 12, breakfast. Own a little cottage by a lake. Learn 20, another language. Go snowshoeing. Hold a PhD.
10: <laughs> it was the one thing that I knew that I had to do. I didn't have necessarily a purpose before, other than to be with Megan and make her happy every day. Yeah. I think this is subconsciously a way for me to still feel like I'm connected to her.
3: Number 13, take the train across Canada.
10: I don't know what I'm, supposed to or going to come to as far as conclusions or or things that I'm supposed to like work through on the train. I, I'm i honestly like really kind of scared to be alone for, with my own thoughts. I know that I'm on a pilgrimage of some sort. I don't know what I'm trying to explain or find or or feel or search for. I know that I want to do these things and keep writing about them for the exact same reason that Megan initially put this out. I myself can't find resources other than really lame 100-page books from the 70s that you find in the library about like what to do with grief now. I want other people to be able to relate in a very real way, and I want to be completely honest about all of this stuff like Megan was. That's the most comforting stuff for me, when people tell me, this is probably the worst thing that will happen to you. It's not going to get better anytime soon. That does so much more for me than somebody who says. Time heals all wounds, or it's just <laughs> you know, like that's so worthless. It's so
1: worthless. I mean, this is like a hard question to ask, but I guess I wonder. And maybe this just isn't something that you've thought of yet, but I wonder if doing this, fulfilling the goals on the list, and that kind of thing will make it even harder down the road to, you know, kind of move on, you know, perhaps, you know, eventually, someday meet
10: somebody else, whatever
1: it is. Do you know what I mean? I do.
10: I do know what you mean. I think, well, I don't think, I know Megan wants me to be happy. I know that she wants me to move on. Uh, she's trying to talk to me about it. And I would have... You mean lately? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> she okay, she tried to to talk to me about it before she passed away and she would try and like bring it up and be like, you know, I like I I want you to be happy. Like I don't want you to be upset and go live by yourself in a shack in the woods, you know, and drink yourself to death. Like I know that she wants that for me, but I don't none of that feels right right now, so I'm not going to do that. Completing her goals trying to finish these things for her and because of her and that feels right so it might make it harder but i honestly like (laughs) i don't want to look for something better like i don't want to move on i don't want to feel better about it i don't want to pretend like this isn't a thing for me anymore i still want to like feel upset and feel like brokenhearted and Yeah.
7: The List was produced by Sean Cole and Ashley Ahern and edited by Nick Vanderkolk. It originally aired on Nick's podcast, Love and Radio. To find out more about the project, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Website, email, telephone, snail mail. You're listening to a special episode of ReSound from the Archives. Coming up after the break, there are diaries that are records of the most important days in our lives. And then there's this diary. twenty 1220 to 1225,
5: I strip to my thermals. I always do that. 1230 to 1250, I eat leftover salmon. Stay with us.
7: Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxide. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we share the very best with you. Today, we bring you an episode from our archives, back when so much of what we listened to was actually on the radio and a podcast was just a radio show on the go. Let's get back to The Lists Show. There's perhaps no more prolific list writer than Robert Shields. Back in 1994, and back in the day of the typewriter, Shields had already written a 35 million word diary, and at the time, showed no signs of slowing down. Producer David Isay visited Shields to see the master list maker at work.
2: For no less than four hours each day, Reverend Robert Shields of Dayton, Washington, holds himself up in the small office off the back porch of his family's home, turns on his stereo, and types. He is surrounded by a half-dozen IBM wheelwriters in case one of them breaks down from overuse. I can do this. Shields spins around in his swivel chair.
5: And get all six typewriters without getting up.
2: (laughs) Robert Shields is 75 years old. He is a short, round man with an impish grin, decked out in his customary writing garb, navy blue thermal underwear and a white T-shirt. Shields was a minister and high school English teacher in this picturesque Washington town before devoting himself to his journal. My diary is complete. Shields is certainly not exaggerating. Over the past 20 years, he has typed between three and 6,000 words each day, keeping a record of everything that happens to him.
5: The entire day is accounted for. I, I don't leave anything out. start It in at midnight and go through the next midnight, and every five minutes is, is accounted for. 12.20 to 12.25, I strip to my thermals. I always do that. to 12.30, I discharged urine. 12.30 to 12.50, I ate leftover salmon, Alaska red salmon by bumblebee, about 7 ounces, drank 10 ounces of orange juice while I read the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations.
2: Robert Shields types his diary in two perfect columns down sheets of 11 by 14 inch paper, which he eventually binds into ledgers and stores in huge cartons, 75 of which are stacked to the ceiling just outside of his office.
5: It's a, an uninhabited diary. It's, it's a tell-all, show-all. It's spontaneous. Uh, I, I type it as a comma and I don't correct it and I don't edit it.
2: Do you read it?
5: No, because if I read it, I wouldn't have time to do anything else. 12.50 to 1.45, I was at the keyboard of the IBM Wheelwriter making entries for the diary. I typed diary entries since 3 o'clock this morning. I failed to mention uh, that the Tri-City Herald weighed in this morning at 1 pound 11 and a half ounces. That was the heaviest paper we have had to my knowledge. It lacked only uh, half an ounce of being one and three-quarters pounds. Think of it. One to
2: Reverend ten, Shields does have a background room, which might help to explain this undertaking. Ten, His father, two John two Arthur five. Shields, was the world's speed typing night champion night. at the turn of the century. He would type the Gettysburg Address over and over again on a manual typewriter at a rate of 222 words per minute. Robert Shields says that he kept a diary on and off for much of his life, but it was not until 1972 that he began to keep this minute-by-minute record. I just kept going, and then I thought, well, I don't want to stop now,
5: and I kept going, and I don't want to stop now, and uh, I just kept it up. Why are you doing this? (laughs) It's an obsession. (laughs) That's all I can say. It's an obsession. (laughs) I, I don't know. What are you trying to do? I don't know. I don't really I really can't answer that. 545 to 615. I read more from the Oxford Dictionary quotations. I ate half a dozen large Archway sugar cookies while I drank two cups of milk.
2: In his diary, Robert Shields records everything he eats. He records his blood pressure and pulse at various times during the day, the temperature outside and in, every conversation he has, every piece of junk mail he receives. He sleeps no more than two hours at a time so that he can record his dreams. Robert Shields has also scotch-taped a variety of his life's keepsakes into this diary, for instance, samples of his nasal hair.
5: For DNA purposes, it it might, in years to come, they might be able to figure out my genetics from having a a physical artifact.
2: What is this in your diary?
5: Oh, uh, whenever we purchase anything, like meat particularly, I peel the stickers off and put it in the diary, (laughs) because then there's a record of uh, how much we bought and what the price of it was. 8.35 to 40, I peel meat labels from Macquarie to Mount in the Diary. Bacon is up 20 cents a pound. T-bones are terribly high. I bought them to feed Dave, I say, Sunday evening. I don't know if they
2: will... It is somewhat disconcerting to see the extent to which this task has taken over the life of Reverend Robert Shields, chaining him to his typewriter on this endless endeavor. Shields, it seems, is so busy documenting the insignificant minutiae of his life that he has become oblivious to everything else going on around him. How does your family feel about this?
5: Never asked (laughs) him. What about leaving town? I don't leave town. I haven't left town since 1985 uh, to visit my brother in Tennessee. Uh, I I don't like to be away overnight because it gets me behind. If I travel to Walla Walla to do shopping, it puts me behind in the diary. I have to take notes all the time and get back, and it takes almost a day to catch up with the notes. So I, I avoid going out. I avoid... Being away. <laughs> 3.05 to 3.30, I read the Tri City Herald. A sniper? It's killed. my makeup, it's my nature, I suppose. What would it do to you if you just stopped? Uh, it'd be like stopping, turning off my life.
2: Reverend Robert W. Shields writes and lives in Dayton, Washington.
5: 3.20 to 3.25 in the afternoon, I took the readings given in the margin. Humidity, 51 and a half, porch temperature 56 degrees, porch floor temperature 51 degrees, the study temperature 77 degrees, and the door temperature in the study on the door
7: jamb. The World's Longest Diary was produced by David Isay and first aired on All Things Considered. Turns out Robert Shields isn't the only person who likes to record everything he does. Information designer Nicholas Felton does too. Since 2005, he's been keeping track of the minutiae of everyday life, and he's turned it into a graphic database. Originally intended for his friends and family, the Personal Annual Reports have found an audience with fellow designers and people that really geek out on seeing lots of data beautifully presented. Here's the Feltron Annual Report by Roman Mars.
6: The 2009 Feltron Annual Report.
8: From this moment on, I want you to record every encounter you have with another person.
6: Total encounters,
8: each mode of transportation.
6: Methods of transportation, 23.
9: Like, if I walk through the door, I'm writing down the name of that store.
6: Total locations reported, 258.
9: I just want to know every single place that I go.
8: That's Nicholas Felton, AKA Beltron.
9: I'm just trying to build a super rich data set.
8: Data sets that he will interrogate at the end of the year, designing pie charts and bar graphs that are used to create a concise infographic that tells the story of Nicholas Felton's year.
9: Is it going to be through the lens of, like, my favorite ATM, or is it going to be through the person spend the most time with
6: most encounters with one person 226
8: he calls the beautifully designed result the feltron annual report
11: Well, the thing that's really relatable about this report...
8: That is the voice of freelance journalist Nate Berg. He interviewed Felton in New York for us.
11: Not only is it clear and kind of easy to understand in in the sort of graphs and pie charts that we've all gotten used to seeing all over the place, but, I mean, it's presenting stuff directly kind of out of my own life, too. New
6: York restaurants visited 111.
11: How many restaurants did I go to last year? How many beers did I drink? Ice
6: cream flavors consumed nine. These
11: are all things that I do, and having the data and the ability to presented helps draw that connection between two essentially strangers.
8: All the easy dismissive criticisms about Foursquare check-ins and Twitter should be popping into your mind right now. They all boil down to this. Why do I care about what you had for breakfast this morning? And I get that. But a funny thing happens when you take what you had for breakfast this morning and multiply it by a hundred of its quotidian equivalents and multiply that times 365.
11: He's doing exactly what everyone else is doing, but he's just doing it in a more purposeful way. It's not only that he wants to track what's happening and kind of see how his life changes over time but present it in a way that's digestible to himself and to other people, even strangers.
8: What Nicholas Felton creates with all that sprawling information superficially resembles a corporate quarterly report but it's the most beautiful version of that that you could possibly imagine. A true work of art.
6: Most consecutive exclamation marks used eight.
9: 2008 was a pretty boring year. I didn't travel very much so the highlights were like first ice cream of the year but You know, it's this elaborate piece of design work that took weeks to create and cost thousands of dollars to produce to document this like one tiny memory that would have been totally lost otherwise. It's my favorite way of telling stories now. It's this way of making things that are either invisible or too large to be comprehended, making them visible rather than the abstractions of looking at tables of numbers. These are pretty uh, compelling and memorable ways of revealing
11: invisible stories. It puts more focus on the, the little things that make up most of your time. Your life isn't really that trip that you took last summer. It's, you know, like the countable times that you kinda of walk down the same way to get to your office, that one house on the corner with that crazy dog. You know, how many hours of your life have you spent listening to, like, Hotel
8: California on the radio? I have to break in here to say this is where a normal public radio show would play the song Hotel California but I am your friend, and I would never do that to you.
9: That, that's the beauty of this kind of representation, is you can take something that represents millions or even billions of actions and reduce it to something that's consumable.
6: Average waters per day, 0.24. Average beers per day,
8: 0.99. Felton has been doing this in-depth self-reporting since 2005. But at the end of 2010, his father died. And so the 2010 Annual Report took on a whole new scope. He took kind of that same approach, but applied it, you
11: know, on a much grander scale to someone's entire life, the the life of his father.
6: The 2010 Feltron Annual Report.
11: I didn't want
9: my 2010 report to be the story of my father's death. I think his death is the least interesting part of his life story.
6: Items cataloged. 4,348 So
9: I wanted to make something that talked about his life
6: Passport stamps, 239
9: It's like writing a biography about someone It's just in a, a different format, I think And perhaps a, a, a more valid one One that's more rooted in the facts, right? It is like a direct translation There's very little, very little of my opinion that shows up in here it's, it's further back, it's in the editing, it's in the curation That my opinion shows up
6: Postcards received, one hundred and sixty-nine. Photos of Gordon in record, ninety-three. Percentage of photos of Gordon wearing a tie, eighteen percent.
9: It's his life story, so it's bookended by his birth and, sadly, by his death. But um, you know, that's that's one of the things I want to remember about him, and I think is um, part of his story is that's the day he died, and. Um, that was what the weather was like, was the next statistic. I'm not trying to be shocking about it, um, but it needs to be in there. And I wanted to have a little repose at the end where you could sort of just um, absorb the, the end of his narrative.
6: Last day, September 12th, 2010.
9: I didn't want to dwell on sickness or um, you know, his spirit fading. I think that's in there. If you look at a lot of the graphs you can see a decline in, in meals out. It's it's kind of foreshadowed throughout the document that you know the spring in his step was diminished in his last few years. My challenge was to try and take that idea of a biography and put it in a new a new form that I hadn't seen before. And you know, you have to give up on not seeing him smile, like not seeing him in motion, not hearing his voice, or you know, listening to one of his jokes. But that's part, that's part of the aggregate view. That's part of this, um, this grander scope that I was going for.
6: Weather on September twelfth, two thousand ten, 2010, 49.8 degrees Fahrenheit and overcast.
7: The Feltron Annual Report, was produced by Roman Mars with Nate Berg for 99% Invisible. Nicholas Felton's last annual report was in 2014.
1: What's really interesting to me uh, with list making is the possibility of making the list narrative in a certain way, even though the list As an impulse, we generally would think of as exempt from a narrative trajectory. So when I make them, I always try to make the list go from point A to point B and to have an internal dynamic and a climax.
7: Rick Moody, author of many novels, including The Ice Storm, has always had a love affair with lists, also with sound. And when he puts the two together, something interesting is born. In 2006, he participated in our Short Docs Challenge, which invited everyone to produce a short story, starting with the sentence, to begin with, they didn't get along. To
4: begin with, they didn't get along. Jack and Diane, Felmer and Louise, Punch and Judy, Baskin and Robbins, Rowan and Martin, Ogilvy and Mather, Ricky and Lucy, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, Huntley and Brinkley, Abbott and Costello, Burns and Allen, Scylla and Charybdis, Reagan and Bush, they didn't get along, they didn't get along, they didn't get along, they didn't get along. In their middle years, they didn't get along. Austria and Hungary, India and Pakistan, Lebanon and Syria, Paraguay and Uruguay, Iran and Iraq, Ethiopia and Eritrea, North and South Korea, Corinth and Athens, China and Tibet, Russia and Ukraine, Turkey and Greece, Britain and France. They They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. During the missing years, they didn't get along. Apache and Choctaw. Hopi and Navajo. Cano and Sinhalese. Catholic and Protestant. Protestant and Protestant. Catholic and Jew. Catholic and Muslim. Muslim and Jew. Serbian and Albanian. Bosnian and Croat. Magyar and Romany. Armenian and Georgian. Chechnyan and Slav. Czech and Pole. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. At the end of the day, they didn't get along. Down and out. Sacred and profane. Beautiful and damned. First and foremost. Shimmy and shake. Latest and greatest. State and main. Venus and Mars. Thrust and parry. Lift and separate. Clean and sober. Rock and roll. Canon and fugue, black and white and yellow and red and tan and indigo and tangerine and fuchsia and mauve. They didn't get along. They Didn't Get Along was produced
7: by Rick Moody and musician Michael Hurst for the 2006 Short Docs Challenge. To find out more about the challenge and how you can get involved, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Before we go, a short love story in the form of a list. Here's
12: the story of my first love. I don't usually tell it all at once because it's a really long story. But I will try to condense the 13 years down a little bit. This is a list of firsts that happened to me over that time, in chronological order. First crush. First date. First time telling someone I like her. First unrequited like first time persisting anyway first kiss first epistolary romance first girlfriend first love first time buying a ring first time asking someone to marry me first time getting married first time getting walked in on by a cleaning lady in the honeymoon suite while in various stages of undress first time having sex first apartment together first vacation together first time failing at Valentine's Day first fight first anniversary second time failing at Valentine's Day first signs of trouble first difficult conversation first marriage counseling session first time losing hope that things would ever get better first time deciding to leave first time breaking someone's heart First Separation. First Divorce.
7: First Love was produced by Whitney Jones for the storytelling website Cowbird.com. And now we bid you a fond farewell, dear listener. Goodbye. Fare thee well. Au revoir. Adieu. So long. See you later. Ta-ta. Tell ho. Over and out. But not before we let you know who we are thankful to for supporting us. Music by List. Franz Liszt. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Mattsai. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya goldberg safer The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. This has been an archive episode from 2012, back when radio was just radio, and podcasting was mostly a promise of things to come. Some of the radio shows we referenced in this episode are sadly now defunct, but they paved the way for your very favorite podcasts. Find out what all the producers featured on this show are working on now at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. ReSound is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 80,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. Learn more at Airtable.com slash Third Coast. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Griehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.
5: I cannot remember any of the things that were on my list of things to do. I will just have to sit here and do nothing.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.